Revelation, A Complete Commentary, by William R. Newell, Part 1, Judgment, Chapter 19 The Great White Throne Judgment Revelation 20 verses 11-15 And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every one according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, even the lake of fire. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. 1. The great white throne is not dispensational or governmental in any sense, but a final, personal, eternal assize. This is evident from the fact that the whole present creation completely disappears before the sitter upon this throne. It is also abundantly confirmed by the silence of those judged. They are not actors in any sense. Finally, the sentence from this throne is eternal. Let us distinguish therefore the great white throne judgment from all those dealings with his enemies which God has heretofore had, as for instance, at Armageddon. Hitherto God's enemies, though vanquished, have been permitted the opportunity to oppose him, even after such an iron-rod order as the millennium. Eternal, final action has not been taken against those who remained unregenerate upon earth. 2. The great white throne judgment is not what we upon earth call a trial. Not one of the judged is asked a single question, for the facts are all in. And the works, upon which judgment must be based always, are all written in the books. Thoughts also are known, even, the secrets of men, all have been recorded. 3. Only one inquiry is made, is the name in, the book of life? Judgment indeed proceeds, the dead, are judged, out of the things which were written in the books, according to their works, for there are degrees of guilt. But the determining question in every case will be, is the name in, the book of life? We cannot emphasize too strongly that this judgment is not at all a trial, but a great public manifestation of facts settled beforehand, and recorded. Let us now proceed to examine this brief but truly stupendous account of the Last Judgment. A Great White Throne Distinguish this from all other aspects of the Divine Throne, whether of Revelation 4 and Daniel 7, or of Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, 1 Kings 22 verse 19, or Exodus 24 verses 9 to 11. Weigh each word, great, it is the infinite before whom the finite must stand, white, it is the unveiled, undimmed blaze of the divine holiness and purity and justice, throne, it is majesty unlimited, in which inheres utter right to dispose of the destiny of creatures. Before such a throne, creatures cannot stand, but they shall stand, even the lost. Him that sat upon it. We must, in view of John 5 verses 22 and 27, believe that Christ, the Son, to whom all judgment and the execution thereof has been committed, is the sitter on this awful throne.
but we cannot avoid the feeling that all the persons of the Godhead are there. It is God as He is, in infinite, holy and eternal majesty, although unto Christ, because He is the Son of Man, the actual judging and execution of judgment has been committed by the Father. The simplicity of the description makes the scene indescribably awful. Eternity is involved therein. The thought is appalling, to face the unapproachable light of God's presence, unforgiven. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. It is no place here for impotent unbelief in its tearfulness to begin to plead that these plain words indicate merely a purging of the earth by fire. Peter declares, The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Our Lord plainly says, Heaven and earth shall pass away. Paul declares, The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And again, Yet once more will I make to tremble and not the earth only but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace. The kingdom referred to, does not include the old material earth and the heavens, which pass away, but our new bodies like Christ's, and such dispensation of all things new which God shall create after the old has forever passed away. To hold on to this old earth when God says it will flee away and no place be found for it, is to become first cousin of the pagan who holds the eternity of matter in the past, and also is of one piece with the legality that professes to be justified by faith but must hold on to Moses as a rule of life. The Reformation theology will not consent that our history was ended at Calvary, thus freeing us from the bond that was against us, forever. In like manner this same theology is afraid to face eternity with no earth to stand upon and no heavens to look to, but only the throne of God left. It is thus unprepared for, the all things new, even the ball, of the material as well as the spiritual existence of the new creation of Revelation 21. The Lord Jesus came and, stood in the midst, the doors being shut, and said, See my hands and my feet, handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye behold me having. Have ye here anything to eat? Only faith. Looks with joy, though mixed with astonishment, on such a scene. Only faith can receive such words as, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. It is unbelief which says that the earth remains, although, its characteristics are changed by fire. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. These, we believe, are all unsaved people. 1. In verse 6, we find, by implication, that the second death has authority, are, v, margin, over those not in the first resurrection, which would surely put them in jeopardy. 2. Our Lord definitely declares, John 5 verse 24, that those hearing His words and believing Him that sent Him, have eternal life, and are not coming into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. He that believeth on Him, is not judged, John 3 verse 18. 3. With regard to eternal destiny, only two resurrections are known in Scripture. The resurrection of life, 
and the resurrection of judgment, John 5 verse 29, Acts 24 verse 15, Daniel 12 verse 2. That these dead have received their bodies when they stand before the great white throne, is evident from Revelation 20 verse 5. For we know, from other scriptures, that their spirits were existing in Hades all this time. And the words, they lived, can then be applied to them only as to their bodies, just as the same words are spoken of the martyrs of verse 4, they lived, and reigned with Christ. We know that certain of these martyrs' souls were seen under the altar at the opening of the fifth seal of Revelation 6 verses 9-11 where they not only were conscious, but knew what was going on the earth, but had not yet received their bodies. And books were opened. If judgment of any creature is to proceed, it must be according to what he has done, his, works. The works of those judged are evidently fully recorded. God will have a record even of the thoughts of every creature, whether its nature is clear to us or not, it will extend to the utmost particulars. At least, it will be in accord with the memory of the creature. It is a well-attested fact that every action and thought is recorded in the memory of man, however unable he may be to recollect a matter at will. In that day, God judges the secrets of men, and men will know those secrets to be theirs, their very own, Romans 2 verse 16. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The question arises, what book is this? Is it the Lamb's Book of Life of 2127, 13,8 and 17,8? The answer is that only those who belong to Christ, given by the Father to Him, are saved. Only such are in that book. Christ is seen in charge of this book in Revelation 3 verse 5. If there are false professors who have escaped the defilements of the world through the acquaintanceship, epignosis, of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who having known, the way of righteousness, turn back, or rocky ground hearers who, receive the word with joy, but have, no root, who for a while believe, and, in time of temptation fall away, who, taste, but do not drink, the heavenly gift, eternal life, and then, fall away, then the thought of being blotted out of the, book of life. Seen also in Exodus 32 verses 32 and 33, Psalm 69 verse 28, should not be in any wise a stumbling block. Judas Iscariot was numbered among the twelve apostles, but he fell away and went to his own place. In Psalm 69 verses 25 to 28, which Peter quotes in Acts 1 verse 20 as referring to Judas, and which the context shows includes those wicked in Israel who joined then in hating Christ, let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written with the righteous. In these awful words we see that though Christ gave himself a ransom for all, and tasted death for every man, thus giving to the whole race of mankind a potential place in the book of life, yet this fact does not constitute them written with the righteous eternally. In fact there is both the blotting certain out from connection with the book of life, and the refusal to write them with the righteous. They had refused him who is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, so that they lose that potential ransom benefit all men had, and will never be written unto life. See Isaiah 4 verse 3 and Daniel 12 verse 1. It seems plain that the Lamb's Book of Life contains only elect names, those found written in Grace's book.
There is the mystery of the sin of man which chooses to apostatize, but there is also the mystery of the grace of God which preserves the elect. God does not want any true believer to lack assurance of eternal safety. Christ said, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. But let us insist on that other mark of Christ's sheep, they follow me. If we are going on in our own way, then what right have we to assurance? Remember the seal of the foundation of God, in I 1 Timothy 2:19. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and, let everyone that nameth the name of the Lord depart from unrighteousness. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now death holds the bodies and Hades the spirits of the lost of the human race. Those drowned at sea are not different from those dying in any other manner. Death holds their bodies and Hades their spirits if they are unsaved. Therefore, the dead who are in the sea, appear not to be human dead. Satan, whose doom is described in verse 10, was not a man, but was the anointed one of the cherubim, Ezekiel 28. In the following passage from the prophet, we find two classes of beings and also two distinct points of time, in that day, at Christ's coming to earth, Jehovah will punish the host of the ones on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together, as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited, Isaiah 24 verses 21 and 22. This passage seems to teach plainly that Satan's host will be judged at the great white throne judgment, after the many days of the millennium. Part of his host is the demons, who seem to be the disembodied spirits of a former creation. It has been believed by many excellent students of God's Word that the sea is connected with Satan's host. See Pembers, Earth's Earliest Ages. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is a literal fulfillment of the prophecy in Hosea 13 verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, I will redeem them from death, O death, I will be thy plagues, O Sheol, I will be thy destruction, repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Death is personified because it has a personal character. We have elsewhere remarked that death is more than mere dissolution, more than the separation of spirit and body. Because death in Revelation 20 verse 14 is said to be cast into the lake of fire, it does not for a moment permit us to consider this awful lake as unreal. This monster, this first death, is, together with that horrible jail, Hades, cast as things hateful to God into a place of eternal wrath. It is a guarantee to all holy beings that sin will never be allowed to invade God's new creation. This passage is difficult. I know I have not sounded its depths. I would be thankful for further light upon it. Of one thing I am certain, it is that this lake of fire and brimstone does not and cannot lose in the least, its terrific literality, from this or from any other passage. They were judged everyone, Greek, ekastos, each, according to their works. To translate this, every man, is to interpret, not translate. God said, each, which may apply to any, and must apply to every being who stands before that awful throne that day, whether man, angel or demon. This is the second death, 
even the lake of fire. The very brevity of this verse is one of the elements of its awfulness. The finality and eternity of this unspeakable doom, how they should be preached and cried aloud these days. It is not love, or faithfulness, to avoid them because they are such terrible facts. God described creation itself, Genesis 1 verse 1, in seven Hebrew words. Here is described in ten Greek words, a doom that will never end. For, inasmuch as this is the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, we need only to refer to verse 10 to see the state of those who will be cast into that lake of fire. 1. They are tormented. This is consciousness and anguish. 2. It is day and night, that is God's description of ceaselessness. 3. It is unto the ages of the ages, God's technical term, from Galatians 1 verse 5 on, for unendingness, whether of God's own existence or the blessed reign and glorified state of his saints, Revelation 22 verse 5, or the punishment of the wicked. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Let us mark certain facts here. 1. It is not the absence of good works in the book that dooms a person. It is the absence of his name. Only names, not works, are in that book. 2. It is not the fact of evil works. Many of earth's greatest sinners have their names in the book of life. 3. All whose names do not appear in the book, are cast into the lake of fire. 4. All names there found in that day, will have been written before that day. There is no record of anyone's name being written into the book of life upon that day, but rather the opposite, if any was not found written. How overwhelmingly solemn is this! 107 Thus the seven, heads, or kings would have a double mark, 1, they would blasphemously arrogate deity to themselves, c. 13, l, and, 2, they would, fall, by violent means. The five before John's day thus would be Julius Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius and Nero. The sixth, who reigned when John wrote was Domitian, most blasphemous, who was assassinated. 108 Babylon is named over 260 times in Scripture, 37 times in one prophecy, Jeremiah 50 and 51. It is more frequently mentioned than any other city except Jerusalem. 109 As regards idolatry being a post-Diluvian development, consider. 1. There is no scriptural record of idolatry before the flood. 2. The presence of the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and the flame of a sword which turned every way, to keep the way of the tree of life, would beyond doubt indicate a dispensation that allowed no such hideous caricature of Jehovah as idolatry sets up. 3. Joshua, in tracing Israel's origin, says, Your fathers dwelt of old time beyond the river, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, Joshua 24 verses 2 and 3. For, shortly after the flood and probably in connection with the daring scheme of the Babel Tower of Genesis 2, appears the earliest historical record we have of idolatry.
The discoveries of Nineveh and Babylon reveal that a secret organization of unbelievers was formed soon after the death of Nimrod, Genesis 10, at a time when open apostasy was dangerous, and that its members established their headquarters at Babylon. From this center they labored with ceaseless activity to confuse and destroy the knowledge of Jehovah in the world and to bring men under the yoke of demon gods. They soon became a powerful and influential body continuing to be a secret society, not wishing to share their power and privileges with any but those willing to pass through the ordeal of initiation, which included a baptism, after which the initiate was termed Weisborn or Regenerate, Greek Diphyes. And worship was originally offered to a trinity consisting of Father, Mother, and Son. But the first person was very commonly confused with the third, and at last almost entirely forgotten, so that the prominent deities were the Mother and Son. Of these the former was by far the most popular and has been known according to time and place as Queen of Heaven, Mother of the Gods, Melita, Astarte, Diana of Ephesus, Aphrodite, Venus, Isis, and the Blessed Virgin. Pettenber, Great Prophecies Mr. Darby remarks, There appear to me to have been four sources of idolatry, first, an ineffaceable consciousness of God, second, deification of ancestors, third, the stars, fourth, the principle of generation. These were interwoven, at last giving rise to corruption inconceivable, the consecration of degrading lusts. 5. The Scripture gives Babylon as the origin of idolatry which spread to all the nations. As Jeremiah cried, Babylon is a land of graven images, and they are mad over idols. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore, the nations are mad, all the earth is drunken, Jeremiah 50 verse 38, 51 colon 7. I have found no other final source of idolatry in Scripture than Babylon. How fitting to Rome, the present form of Babylon, is the double statement that the kings of the earth committed fornication. Rome's influence over kings is a sort of personal influence, such as that of a harlot, her power over the nations is more distant, like that of wine. Her doctrine is, wine of fornication. Christianity is too holy, strict, self-denying, humbling for men by nature. Rome discovers to the nations a way of enjoying the world to the full, yet with the flattering belief that they are the servants of Christ, Govet. 110 The correct reading of Romans 12 verse 11 is found in the Revised Version, in diligence not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, referring wholly to diligence in the spiritual life, as see context, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, etc. Business is not in that at all. 111 In what, indeed, does the mightiest and farthest reaching power on earth now already center? A power which looms up in all lands, far above all individual or combined powers of church, or state, or caste, or creed? What is it that today monopolizes nearly all legislation, dictates international treaties, governs the conferences of kings for the regulation of the balance of power, builds railways, cuts ship canals, sends forth steamer lines to the ends of the earth, unwinds electric wires across continents, under the seas, and around the world, employs thousands of engineers, subsidizes the press? tells the state of the markets of the world yesterday that everyone may know how to move today, and has her. 
living organizations in every land and city, interlinked with each other, and coming daily into closer and closer combination, so that no great government under the sun can any longer move or act against her will, or without her concurrence and consent? Think for a moment, for there is such a power, a power that is everywhere clamoring for a common code, a common currency, common weights and measures, and which is not likely to be silenced or to stop till it has secured a common center on its own independent basis, whence to dictate to all countries and to exercise its own peculiar rule on all the kings and nations of the earth. That power is commerce, the power of the ephah and the talent, the power borne by the winged women of Zechariah 5, the one with her hand on the sea and the other with her hand on the land, the power which even in its present dismemberment is mightier than any pope, any throne, any government, or any other one human power on the face of the globe. Let it go on as it has been going, and will go, in spite of everything that earth can interpose to hinder, dissolving every tie of nationality, every bond of family or kindred, every principle or right and religion which it cannot bend and render subservient to its own ends and interests, and the time must come when it will settle itself down somewhere on its own independent base, and where Judaism and heathenism, Romanism and Protestantism, Mohammedanism and Buddhism, and every distinction of nationality, English, German, French, Italian, Greek, Turk, Hindu, Arab, Chinese, Japanese, or what not, shall be sank in one great universal fellowship and kingdom of commerce. From Cease, on the Apocalypse, written in 1865. 112 It is, we believe, evident that at the moment this great call comes for praise on the part of all God's servants and those that fear Him, the small and the great, there are still on earth, in great trouble, those whose warfare is not yet accomplished. Here Luke 18 verse 8, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? There will be those on earth who are really God's elect, but have not yet received faith. It will not be given until the first three verses of Isaiah 60 are fulfilled, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Jehovah is risen upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the nations shall come to thy light. This is not until the Lord Himself is revealed in Jerusalem unto beleaguered Israel, until they look unto Him whom they have pierced. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, which is His pierced person, and they shall at last, like Thomas, believe because they have seen. Moreover the whole scene of Revelation 19 verses 1-10 Is heavenly, not earthly and it precedes the coming of the Lord with His heavenly armies to destroy His enemies. 113 Those who teach that Revelation 21, 9, ff, goes back to the millennial order, before the last judgment and the new creation, claim that, nations, will not exist in the new earth. But these seem to forget Isaiah 65 verses 17 and 18 as well as 66 22, where the creation of the new heavens and the new earth is connected with the perpetuation of the seed and the name of Israel. There are many prophecies setting forth the eternal perpetuity of that elect nation. And if of Israel, the elect nation, then also of other nations. Also, as seen in Revelation 21 verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it.
we know that the formation of nations arose out of a judgment, at Babel. But the establishment of Israel as a kingdom under David arose from the judgment upon Israel's rejection of Jehovah as their king. Our Lord's royal title lies in the covenant with David, the king, his father. The idea that nations will cease to exist does not seem to be borne out in Scripture. See Notes on Chapter 21 These are some of the passages of the prophets that look toward this terrible day of the Lord, when He comes to tread His enemies underfoot, according to the Father's appointment. Remove from your mind the thought of mercy in, that day of vengeance of our God. An evil and adulterous generation today hates the thought of judgment. Sin is sweet to them, therefore is the sword of Jehovah bitter. Like King Agag, its prophets and preachers simper to their scripture-ignorant hearers, surely the bitterness of death is past, Samuel 15:32. But the next verse says, And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before Jehovah in Gilgal. The false prophets of this hour, all the shallow, advanced, college professors, the wicked well-poisoning modernist horde of lying preachers, the dead denominationalists, content to sit in cushioned pews and pay a fawning puppet to preach inanities that never reach men's consciences, yes, all the false prophets who cry, peace, peace, when God warns of the swiftly coming day of wrath, arid all the Satan-drugged hosts of Christendom, content to hearken to them and lie down to sleep on the edge. Of the volcano of destruction, let them read such scriptures as the above. But they will not. In the present day, Jeremiah 5 verses 30 and 31 is realized before our eyes, a wonderful and horrible thing is come to pass in the land, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so, and what will ye do in the end thereof? The forbearance of God is at last at an end. To prolong it would be to connive at sin. Therefore, God's holy hatred toward sin is unloosed, in all its fierceness. He will send His dear Son, whom men despised, with the direct commission of utter vengeance. It will be a winepress, the bodies of men will be crushed. It is the winepress of wrath, who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry. It is the winepress of the fierceness of wrath, the words are terrible. And finally, it is, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty. Ah, how feeble are words to portray the unloosed fury of that dreadful day! I found a great nest of hornets one summer, built upon the cottage porch. I would have been glad to observe their workings from the room within. But no, they challenged my every approach. I had to go in and out of the house by a back door, and even then they were annoying and dangerous. There was no peace, there could be none. After several particularly grievous attacks by these deadly insects, I took a fishing pole, wrapped the tip of it round and round with several yards of muslin, which I tied carefully, then waited nightfall, when the hornets would all be in their nest I soaked the cloth thoroughly with kerosene and lit it. Then I held that flaming pole beneath that hornet's nest with relentless determination. The insects rushed out to burning and death. I left not one. This earth will have become a nest of hideous hornets against God. And God will clear them out. He will leave not one. Not one rebel will be spared, 
Matthew 13 verses 41 and 42. And Christ will strike first at Armageddon. Gathered about Jerusalem will be, all the nations, in a battle line of two hundred miles, from Edom to Carmel, Revelation 14 verse 20, Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 6. And how our Lord will, strike through kings, and tread down their millions, in that day. Psalm 110 verses 5 and 6. 115 Mark the seven occurrences of the words, Voice of Jehovah, in Psalm 29, with the instantaneous might of the effect, for this psalm is millennial, when, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is, the breath of his lips, that shall slay the wicked, Isaiah 11 verse 4. 116 The same, mighty one of Jacob, who comes having, King of kings, written upon his thigh, in that great day of wrath, to establish his kingdom, touched Jacob's thigh on the night he wrestled with him, Genesis 32, taking away his carnal strength. For by strength shall no man prevail, power belongeth unto God. 118J N. Darby's Tract on, Eternal Punishment, F. W. Grant's Book, Facts and Theories as to a Future State, Sir Robert Anderson's Human Destiny, are excellent, although Mr. Grant yields to the common absurd cry that the fire of hell may represent something more terrible. R. A. Tory's words on hell, in What the Bible Teaches, are true and searching. The best thing we have ever seen on the subject is the booklet, Life and Death, by C. J. Baker, obtainable from Pickering in Inglis, London, England, and Moody Colportage Association, Chicago. 119 Alfred truly says, if, in a passage where two resurrections are mentioned, where certain souls lived, at first, and the rest of the dead lived only at the end of a specified period, after that first, the first resurrection may be understood to mean a spiritual rising with Christ, while the second means a literal rising from the grave, then there is an end of all significance in language, and Scripture is wiped out as a definite testimony to anything. If the first resurrection is spiritual, then so is the second, but if the second is literal, then so is the first, which, with the whole primitive church, I do maintain. Stuart says, they lived means they revived, came to life, returned to a life like the former one, vi, a return to a union of soul and body. Eliot says, the resurrection spoken of, here in Revelation 20 verse 4, corresponds in every case to the death out of which it was a revival. Bengal says, the first resurrection is a corporeal one. Therefore, the dead became alive in that part in which they were dead or mortal, consequently in their body.